Many years ago, I began a, uh, what I hope will be a lifelong study of uh, Pastor Jonathan Edwards, who ministered in Northampton, Massachusetts, and is regarded uh, as one of America's uh, great theologians and uh, pastors raised up by God. He was instrumental uh, in uh, leading the Great Awakening in New England. Jonathan Edwards once said, when I am teaching God's Word, my aim is to raise as high as possible toward the Lord the affections of my people. Why is that? Because God is not about filling our heads with more information about Him. Information is very important. But it has a greater end. God is about filling our hearts with a new affection for Him. Our Lord and our God is the lover of our souls, and His goal is to transform us into lovers of Him. How does God win our affections? If we think about it, when we fall into sin, and if we ask ourselves, how on earth did I get here? What you will invariably find is that we worshipped our way into it. We worshipped our way into the trouble. That's how we got tripped up and trapped. Something stole your affections. Something was so big in your eyes that you stood in awe of it and you gave yourself to it. You obeyed it. You served it. You followed it. So the only way we're going to get untangled from our sin is to worship our way out of it and to worship our way back to the Lord who calls us, who loves us. How does God rescue you? His method is shock and awe. God sets Himself before us as the superior object of our worship. And He opens the eyes of the blind. He unstops the ears of the deaf to see and to hear Him. He shocks you with the good news of who He is and what He does in order that you and I might stand in awe of Him. Remember our call to worship this morning from Psalm 130. Did you get this? If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Why? Purpose. That you may be feared. That you may be revered. He shocks us with His mercy in order that we might fear Him, love Him, stand in awe of Him. Perhaps that call to worship did not have that effect. Well, let's kick it up a notch. 
Let's consider the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, as God seeks to shock us with who He is in order that we might stand in awe of who He is. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 and following. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to turn to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This is God's Word. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this wonderful gift of beginning the new year by opening up your word and being addressed by you. We thank you that you are not silent, but you speak. And when you speak, you always speak your truth in love. You are after us. Your heart is to come near, to redeem, to rescue. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, working together with this word spoken by you, that you would, that you would save and sanctify your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So here's the context, historically speaking. You know the story. 
the great exodus, God rescues His people from Egypt. He adopts Israel as His very own son. And He leads His people through the wilderness to the mountain, Sinai. And there He gives His covenant. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. This is how you live in relationship to Me. And He leads His people in conquest into the land of promise. And there He establishes through the King His kingdom. And there's blessing for His people. But in the year 931, there's division. The kingdom of Israel splits to the north. The kingdom of Judah splits to the south. Hosea the prophet is ministering in the northern kingdom. He's speaking to Israel. He's God's instrument to speak to His people for about 50 years under the reign of seven kings through the years. And economically, there is great prosperity. But socially, there is great injustice. And politically, there is great decline. And spiritually, there is great idolatry. So, God speaks through the prophet Hosea to win back their worship and mine and yours. Here's where we're going in two steps. First of all, we learn from this text that when you look at your waywardness, you will find lots of good reasons to sit and grieve. Verses 1 through 7. But when you look at God's faithfulness, and that's where we want to focus especially, you will find lots of better reasons to stand in awe. Verses 8 through 11. Let's consider these in turn. First of all, verses 1 through 7. When you look at your waywardness, when you look back on 2020, if you're like me, you'll find lots of good reasons to sit and to grieve. These verses are cast in the form of a legal proceeding. The background is Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 and 19, where God speaking through Moses says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. This is God's personal reflection in the courtroom, as it were. And first of all, in verses 1 through 4, God brings His charge. It's as though He's the plaintiff bringing His charge and making His case before the judge and the jury. And He begins, first of all, by reflecting on His covenant love. Verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. At the Exodus, the Lord set His love upon Israel. He adopted Israel as His son. Why? Not because they were so strong. Not because they were so impressive. But simply because He chose to love them. 
And the Lord says repeatedly through Moses to Pharaoh, Exodus chapters 5 through 10, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my people go in order that they may serve me. Because with a strong arm, God sets His people free from slavery and He brings them safely through the Red Sea. Why? In order to serve Him. But in verse 2, God continues by reflecting on our rebellious flight. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. You might think that Israel was free, but there's a deeper slavery, a willful blindness, a desertion. They sacrificed to the Baals. That is, the God of fertility in the ancient Near East. The God who brings the rain. The God who makes your garden grow. The God that you've got to do things for to please in order that He might bless you. And so they burned incense to the images. It was sort of a way of paying tithes to garner the favor and manipulate the gods to do what you wanted them to do for you. And of course, today we're more sophisticated than that. But we worship idols nonetheless. We turn from the Lord and we turn to some other, even a good thing, that becomes an ultimate thing and seek to squeeze life out of it to get blessing from it. God begins with His covenant love. He continues by reflecting on our rebellion, but He concludes by reflecting on His profound disappointment, verses 3 and 4. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Do you hear the heart of the Father? I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. In November, uh, Cindy and I had the great joy of getting ready to celebrate the wedding of our son, Evan. We uh, told you about that, and we're grateful for your prayers. In early November, we pulled out all of the photos of Evan growing up. We were going to put together a slideshow uh, for the rehearsal denter, and it was, it, was like, it was like walking down memory lane. And I remember that photo with, with Cindy just holding Evan in her arms just less than an hour old. And I remember the photo of teaching little Evan how to walk, even how to, to mow the grass with his little, little lawnmower one Christmas. And we just watched him grow and we sorted through the pictures and, and it was a great joy to, to see how he grew up. But imagine the sorrow of a father sifting through the photos of all of his time and all of his goodness toward the child. 
only to grieve over the direction the child has taken. Recounting his faithfulness, but the child's waywardness. That's what's happening here. In the wilderness, there were threats on every side, and yet God cares for His people. He feeds them. And there's the conquest, and there are threats on every side, and yet God protects them. And He settles them into the land. And you can hear the sadness of the Father. It was I who did all of this. But the more I pursued, the more they rejected. God speaks to us this morning to wake us up when we're sleepwalking. The Bible gives us eyeglasses to see the moral drama that is playing in the universe. We live in a personal universe. We are God-relational people. He is always relating to us, and we are always relating to Him in one way or the other. Do you see His faithful love? Do you see in the mirror of the text our stubborn flight? Do you see that this betrayal cries out for consequence? Because it's all personal. It's all covenantal with God. That's the charge. And it's as though God is making His case before the jury. And He's pulling out Exhibit A and Exhibit B. He's making His case in this legal proceeding. He's bringing the charge. And in verses 5, 6, and 7 comes the sentence. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to turn to me. Verse 5. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. The Lord will discipline His people. And He does. In 722 B.C., the Lord raises up this figure named Shalmaneser, the great king of Assyria. And he is no match for Hosea, the king of Israel at this time. And the king of Israel invades and destroys the cities of Israel and he takes captive God's people and he brings them into the land of Assyria, the exile. And God wants us to learn the lesson. His deliverance in the past is no protection against His discipline in the present. He's seeking to win our hearts. But where I really want us to focus, the bad news first, like, like laying this black cloth in order that when God puts the diamond on the black cloth, we can see it more brilliantly. When you look at your waywardness, you'll find lots of good reasons to sit and grieve. But where we want to focus especially is on the diamond. 
When you look at God's faithfulness, you'll find better reasons to stand in awe, verses 8 through 11. Now, I want you to notice this. To this point, God has been looking at the jury. He's been making His case. They, they, they. But now He turns and He looks you in the eye. Before it was all third person. They. But now it becomes very personal. He turns and looks you in the eye and speaks directly to you. 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 Did you notice the transition in voice? First of all, deliberation. Verse 8. How can I give you up O Ephraim, how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? You see what's happening. In one moment, he's talking to the jury. But then he pivots and turns and looks at you and his heart wells up. The sight of his people just overwhelms him. How can I? How can I? How can I? How can I? Four times. How can I? I can't. I can't do it. As he looks you in the eye and loves you. See, the issue here is one of utter destruction. Will God utterly destroy His people? That's the language of give you up. It's military language. Will I ultimately give you over to the enemy? Will I treat you like Adma, Zeboim? These were a couple of cities alongside Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 19. Can I do to you what I did to them? Do you feel the struggle? On the one hand, God's wrath towards sin. But on the other hand, there's God's love for His people. My heart recoils within me. I can't do it. How could I do it to the one that I love? My compassion grows Warm and tender. The sight of His Son, the sight of you in Christ, just, it just overwhelms Him because there is a tie that binds. There is a tie that binds. God's heart recoils. His attitude towards sin has not changed. He hates it. But his wrath will have to find a different target. So, deliberation gives way to determination. Verses 9, 10, and 11. And it's a determination that has two sides to it. First of all, verse 9, God says to us, I will not destroy... I will not execute my burning anger. 
I will not again destroy Ephraim. Verse 9. Why? For I am God and not a man. I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. But this is where we have to slow down and think carefully. How can the Holy One be in their midst? How can the Holy One be in our midst? Because the Holy One cannot live in the presence of sinners. And yet the text says the Holy One is in our midst. How can this be? Because the Holy One has found a way to bring judgment against sin without destroying you and me. And this way, somewhat concealed in the Old Testament, is brightly revealed in the New Testament. Recall the Gospel of Matthew. We listened to it read just a few minutes ago. Jesus is born in Bethlehem in a manger because there was no room in the inn. By the way, I, whenever I hear this text, I always think about a few years ago, my son Nathan and I were, were on a trip. We were up in Vermont, and we were driving back to North Carolina, and it was a long trip, and so we needed a place to stay, and we're driving through Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And it's about 11 o'clock, and I can't look for a hotel. And so I call my wife Cindy, and I ask her to do a search, and then to call me back and to give me a clue as to where we might stay. And I say, I think there's a Holiday Inn in Bethlehem. She calls me back. She says, I called the Holiday Inn and there's no room. And I said to her, are you telling me that there's no room in the inn in Bethlehem? She said, I'm telling you there's no room in the inn in Bethlehem. What follows the birth of Jesus is a passage that curiously quotes from Hosea chapter 11. Let me read that to you again from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took Jesus and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew sees the migration of Jesus into Egypt and then out of Egypt as a way that our Lord Jesus identifies with you and me, His prodigal people, His younger brother who goes into the distant land and is wayward. Matthew sees that Jesus identifies with the charge brought against us. Matthew sees that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's the great exchange. 
Jesus receives the sentence that is brought against us, cast out for us, on the cross for us, receiving the wrath for us. It falls and sin is judged. And this is why God can say in this text, I will not come in wrath against you, for I have come in wrath against Jesus for you. There is a tie that binds. The Holy One has found a way both to satisfy His justice and to deliver His beloved people. God is not a man. He is the Holy One in our midst. And who He is and what He does for us in Jesus blows the mind. He thinks, does, loves in ways that you and I would never expect. That's only one side of the deliberation. Here's the second. Verses 10 and 11. Not only will I not destroy, that's half the good news, but I will also restore That's the second half. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When He roars, His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. It's this glorious promise. The Lord is renewing His covenant with you and me. We His people have failed Him, but He will not give us up. There's this glorious reversal. Before, in the text, they went from Me. But here at the end of the text, they will come to Me. As surely as the sun rises. How can this be? Out of Egypt I called My Son. On Friday, Jesus died and went into the land of Egypt, into the land of slavery for His people. And He was buried. But on Sunday, out of Egypt, I called my son. And not only my son, but every one of you who are bound to Jesus through faith. Do you remember, kids, do you remember the great scene from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? You remember that? Aslan, the great lion, he's muzzled and he's given over to death on the stone table, and time passes. And C.S. Lewis writes, at that moment, you listening, kids? At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that? Said Lucy, clutching Susan's arm. I feel afraid to turn around, said Susan. Something awful is happening. They're doing something worse to him, said Lucy. Come on. And she turned, pulling Susan round with her, 
The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed that for a moment they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Oh, oh, cried the girls, rushing back to the table. It's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, cried a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. And they looked around, and there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're, you're not a, asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. And Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead, the warmth of his breath, and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it? He said, Oh, you are real. You are real, oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean? Asked Susan. When they were somewhat calmer, it means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes only back to the dawn of time, but if she could look back a little further into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have known there is a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim had committed no treachery, was killed in the place of the traitor, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And now, to business. And the playful scene of chase ensues, but Aslan persists off to business. I feel I am going to roar. You had better put your fingers in your ears. And they did. And Aslan stood up, and when he opened his mouth to roar, his face became so terrible that they did not dare to look at it. And they saw all of the trees in front of them bend before the blast of his roaring as grass bends in a meadow before the wind. And then he said, we have a long journey to go. And off they go to the castle where everything is wintry and everything is under the spell of the wicked white witch. But he breathes and everything begins to melt and death works backward. And he roars because there is a tie that binds. He comes to the rescue. The African-American pastor was fond to say, sin will find you. Sin will 
blind you. Sin will bind you. But in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, out of Egypt, out of the grave, God raises His Son, and this morning the resurrected Christ roars and calls you to return. And He opens the eyes of the blind, and He changes your heart to love Him. You grieve your sin, and all you want to do in the year 2021 is to live a new life of obedience for Him. Shock and awe. That's how God wins you back. By working in you through His Word and by His Spirit so that you fear the Lord, so that you love the Lord, so that you follow the Lord until that day comes when He will settle you in your home. This is your story. This is your story this new year. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would help us outweigh the reasons we rightly grieve over our waywardness with the good news, the news of Your mercy and Your kindness and faithfulness to us in Jesus. Sometimes we get so stuck looking at ourselves and we get turned in and down. But we pray that this text would be the medicine that you apply to lift up our eyes, to turn away from ourselves and to look at your great faithfulness to us in Jesus and that it would free us, and that it would enable us to walk with You, that You would give us ears to hear the roar of our Lord Jesus Christ, the effective call both to save us and to sanctify us. Lord, would You help us in 2021? We want to grow, but we get tripped up and trapped. We pray that you, would, that you would help us through your word and as a community speaking this good news to one another in love from Sunday proclamation to everyday conversation. We pray that you would continue to rescue us and to bring us home. And we ask all of this for the sake of your great name and for the good of your people, we pray in Jesus. Amen. Well, let's conclude our worship by standing together and singing, The Lord is my salvation.
shock and awe. May the God of peace, who, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus, to whom belongs glory forever and ever. Amen.